Good evening. Biden rejoins the Paris Climate Accord as Texas freezes and vaccine shipments stall. The Justice Roadmap Rethinking the Police as Death Stalks America. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, February 19th, 2021. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin demanded an immediate reduction of violence in Afghanistan today, but didn't offer any hints if the United States would withdraw its troops by a May deadline. As we move forward in our review, we will consult with our NATO allies, our resolute support partners, and of course, the government of Afghanistan. And there will be no surprises. We will consult each other and and consult together and and decide together and act together. And so that was my message over the last two days, and I think it was well received. The Biden administration is conducting a review of a February 2020 deal with the Taliban and determine if the United States will meet the deadline set by former President Trump, withdrawing the remaining 2,500 U.S. troops from America's longest war. NATO countries are reluctant to heed the May 1st deadline, saying the Taliban have not fulfilled commitments they made in the accord. Negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government have largely stalled in recent weeks, leading to growing fears that talks could be on the brink of collapse. And President Biden has been sounding a drumbeat of return to the agreements and treaties shredded under his predecessor's America First ideology. Trump, who touted a return to coal and derided environmentalism and climate change warnings, had made leaving the Paris Climate Accord, negotiated by President Barack Obama, one of his earliest moves. Citizen Biden had promised a return just a few years ago. Today, Biden, in a virtual visit to Europe, officially announced America is back. We can no longer delay or do the bare minimum to address climate change. This is a global existential crisis. And we'll all suffer, we'll all suffer the consequences if we fail. We have to rapidly accelerate our commitments to aggressively curb our emissions and to hold one another accountable for meeting our goals and increasing our ambitions. That's why, as president, I immediately rejoined the Paris Agreement. And as of today, the United States is officially, once again, a party to the Paris Agreement, which we helped put together. On Earth Day, I will host a leader's summit to help drive more ambitious actions among the top emitters, including domestic climate action here in the United States. Biden added the allies must stand firm against the challenges posed by China, Iran and Russia, saying Russia was seeking to weaken the transatlantic alliance and calling for unity to counter what he called China's abusive economic practices. And the storm that's been battering the southern plains cities are uh, trading uh, has forced those cities to trade one crisis for another as electricity has been restored to millions in Texas and surrounding states. Frozen pipes cause a shortage of clean drinking water. Texas authorities ordered 7 million people, a quarter of the population in the nation's second largest state, to boil tap water before drinking it. Hundreds of thousands of homes and businesses in Memphis, Tennessee and Jackson, Mississippi, were also facing orders to boil water. Governor Greg Abbott ordered an investigation into the failure for a state known as the U.S. energy capital, 
where deregulation in the libertarian-minded population may have contributed to the disaster. In the state's free energy market with electricity in demand, some consumers were shocked by $5,000 and more electric bills. Warmer weather is forecast for Saturday. An analyst with the Food and Water Watch, Mitch Jones, says the conservative worldview popular with some Texas legislators is not an energy policy. Thereby, Texas deciding to take it a, uh, a go-it-alone approach to their electrical grid to avoid regulation by the federal government. They're the only state in the country, uh, in the lower 48 states, that have their own separate uh, electric grid connection that is not integrated with surrounding states in any meaningful way. And on top of that, Texas uh, deregulated their electricity market about 30 years ago, which has led to uh, further uh, problems within the Texas grid. From a technical point of view, the real problem is that the power plants, especially the natural gas power plants in Texas, aren't winterized. And the reason why they're not winterized is because they haven't been told they have to be under some form of regulation. In addition, the companies believe they can make a larger profit than they would otherwise if they didn't winterize their plants. The other day, the governor, Greg Abbott, was uh, blaming solar and uh, wind power. Why is that not true? It's not true because the largest impact of the decrease in Electricity production comes from fossil fuel plants, especially from the fracked gas plants. But also one of the four nuclear plants in Texas is was knocked off the grid. Coal plants were knocked off the grid. Yes, some turbines were knocked off the grid. Yes, some solar was knocked off the grid. But it was actually the case that wind was overperforming what had been anticipated earlier by the agency which oversees Texas's power grid. And that natural gas was woefully underperforming, just like the gas plants in Texas aren't winterized because nobody's telling the companies they have to do it. The turbines in Texas aren't winterized because nobody's telling those companies they have to do it. And so really the heart of the problem here is the deregulated electricity market in Texas and the lack of any meaningful regulation and oversight because of Texas's intent and keeping their grid separate from everyone else's. They're cutting off gas to Mexico and potentially cutting off gas supplies outside of the state. Now, since the problem is an absolute gas supply, uh, what's to be gained from cutting off gas supplies to the other customers? This is just a public relations stunt on the part of the governor to make it seem like he's actually doing something when he hasn't been doing much of anything at all other than going on Fox News and lying about renewables and the Green New Deal. It's being promoted as a way of saying we're going to keep the gas here in Texas. The problem isn't that there's not enough gas in Texas. The problem is that the pipes are frozen that the wellheads are frozen, that the gas can't actually travel through the pipes. And that's not going to change because you say you're not going to be sending gas out of the state. It's really just uh, Governor Abbott trying to continue to look like he's doing something when, in fact, he's failing. Texas first. America first. Now we have Texas first. A few weeks ago, he was proposing to declare Texas an independent republic again. And then now he's begging the federal government for help. Do we have a problem in America that people are so easily suckered 
into these kind of arguments? This is part of the whole move in our country to believe that anything that disagrees with your worldview must be false. And it's spread by, as you and all of your listeners know, a multi-billion dollar media push by every corporation in America, including the oil and gas industry and the electric utilities, to shirk responsibility, to push their profits before our health and our climate. It's unfortunate that we continue to have elected officials who perpetuate this. We've seen how dangerous it is, and we're seeing how dangerous it is now. You know, we know of at least 47 deaths as a result of this winter storm, a real consequence of our continued acceptance of a political system and a media system that allows public officials to lie with impunity on behalf of for-profit corporations. And that's Mitch Jones. He's an analyst with Food and Water Watch. Meanwhile, the weather continues to delay the shipments of vaccines and interfere with vaccination programs across the country, with power outages putting refrigerator-dependent COVID vaccines at risk and dangerous conditions slowing transport of vaccines. The White House COVID-19 Response Team Senior Advisor is Andy Slavitt. He says the weather has caused a backlog of 6 million vaccine doses. FedEx, UPS, and McKesson, our logistics and distribution teams, have all faced challenges as workers have been snowed in and unable to get to work to package and ship the vaccines, kits, and the required diluent. Road closures have held up delivery of vaccines at different points in the distribution process. More than 2,000 vaccine sites are located in areas with power outages, so they're currently unable to receive doses. We're already working to clear this backlog. 1.4 million doses are already in transit today. All the backlog doses will be delivered within the next week. And New York City has been stymied by the lack of vaccines, despite mass vaccination centers at the Javits Center, Yankee Stadium, and City Field. Today, Mayor de Blasio braved the snow to open the newest edition at Empire Outlets, a shopping center on Staten Island, where his message was more vaccine and local control. I am so happy to announce that the Empire Outlets Vaccination Center is open for business. Right now, Staten Islanders are getting vaccinated. And we had, yes, you can clap for that. Staten Islanders are getting vaccinated right here at Empire Outlets. And this site is only for Staten Islanders. It's not a lack of people who want to be vaccinated. What's missing? Supply of vaccine. If the state would cut the red tape and give New York City the ability to do what we know how to do. It's time for more local control here in New York City so we can get people vaccinated. Mayor de Blasio. Meanwhile, the daily New York City COVID indicators based on seven-day averages were 19,319 confirmed new cases, 1,593 hospitalizations, and 443 confirmed deaths. All the indicators have been decreasing significantly. The hardest-hit areas are Flushing, Brighton Beach, and the Bronx. And an FBI probe into New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's handling of long-term care patients in city hospitals is gathering steam. More than 12,000 died in nursing homes in the first months of the pandemic as the state granted some of the same facilities immunity from lawsuits. In recent weeks, families of some who died have been protesting at Cuomo's Manhattan offices. News of the investigation in the Eastern District of New York comes as the new Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report was published showing the lifespan of Americans as the declined by an average of one year since the pandemic began. It's the biggest decline since the middle of World War II. 
but the statistics hide an unsettling fact, racial and ethnic disparity. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky. The report found that life expectancy was at its lowest level in 15 years, dropping by a full year compared to the life expectancy in 2019. The largest declines in life expectancy occurred in non-Hispanic Black persons, dropping 2.7 years, levels not seen since 2001. And Hispanic persons had lost the second largest life expectancy, dropping 1.9 years. These findings, though not surprising, are sobering and representative of the continued need to take this pandemic and actions to stop the spread of COVID-19 seriously. And as CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the COVID-19 pandemic is likely responsible for the majority of the decline, says Elizabeth Arias, a health scientist at the National Center for Health Statistics and lead author of the report. She spoke on a CDC podcast. The COVID-19 pandemic has disproportionately affected minority populations, including African-Americans, Hispanics, and Native Americans. The significantly larger declines in life expectancy in the African-American population, which was 2.7 years, and in the Hispanic population, which was 1.9 years, reflect the racial and ethnic disparities in the effects of the pandemic. The decline in life expectancy for the African-American population was 3.4 times greater than the decline for the non-Hispanic white population. And the decline in life expectancy for the Hispanic population was 2.4 times greater than the decline for the non-Hispanic white population. Past studies have shown that the Hispanic population has longer life expectancy than other groups, but it appears the pandemic has cut into that advantage significantly. Is that right? Yes, it has. For over 30 years, studies have consistently shown the Hispanic population has lower mortality than the non-Hispanic white population. Since we began estimating life expectancy by Hispanic origin with data year 2006, this Hispanic mortality advantage relative to the non-Hispanic white population increased from 2.1 year to 3 years between 2006 and 2019. As a result of the pandemic, the Hispanic life expectancy advantage declined 37 percent between 2019 and 2020 to an advantage of just 1.9 years. We've also seen very substantial increases in drug overdose deaths in the first part of 2020. Could that also be driving this decline in life expectancy? The life expectancy estimates for the first half of 2020 were estimated based on the total number of deaths that occurred during that period. The difference in life expectancy between the first half of 2020 and 2019 is due to the increase in the number of excess deaths during the former period. So excess deaths during that period may include deaths from causes other than COVID-19, such as um, drug overdose deaths. Elizabeth Arias, a health scientist at the National Center for Health Statistics, she authored the CDC report showing an alarming decrease in the lifespan of Americans starting last year. As Dr. Arias reported, some of the excess deaths may be attributed to drug overdoses. Drug deaths started spiking last spring, according to the health blog STAT, and more recent statistics from cities throughout the U.S. and Canada show the crisis has only deepened. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. This week, a dozen New York state legislators spoke about their recent visits to prisons, jails, and ICE detention centers ravaged by COVID-19. 
Joined by currently and formerly incarcerated New Yorkers and families with loved ones behind bars, they called for the swift passage of the Justice Roadmap, a package of state bills that would decarcerate New York and curtail death and torture behind bars. The legislators have also called for immediate access to COVID-19 vaccines for incarcerated New Yorkers. Linda Perry has this report. Marvin Mayfield is statewide organizer at Center for Community Alternatives. He says black New Yorkers comprise 16 percent of New York's population, but they are 50 percent of the population in state prisons and 65 percent are more likely to be sent into solitary and more likely to be denied parole. Our lives matter. Uh, The lives of our incarcerated friends and family matter. That's why these uh, visits to jails, prisons, and detention centers matters so deeply and more importantly, because we cannot and will not live in a state that doesn't care if our loved ones live or die, that ignores torture and death behind bars. Mayfield justice advocates and New York state elected officials are pushing for passage of the justice roadmap. Tim Reed, a leader with Center for Community Alternatives, is incarcerated at Franklin Correctional Facility. It's almost 300 miles from New York City. It's designated an all-male facility. Reed said hundreds incarcerated at Franklin are over the age of 50 with pre-existing conditions at risk to contract the coronavirus. 31% at Franklin have tested positive for COVID-19. 31%. It is impossible to social distance. We sleep within two to three feet of each other. The only thing separating us is a half-sized cubicle wall that stands about four feet high. We have to wear the same mask for days. And when we ask a guard for a new one, we are told sorry. We don't have enough. A staff member even made the ridiculous statement, what are you worried about? Once you have had COVID, you can't get it again. We are people. We are husbands, we fathers, we sons, we're friends, but we haven't been treated that way. Reed said he's happy that legislators are visiting facilities, that the justice roadmap needs to be passed immediately. Long term solitary, he says, needs to end. One of the bills in the Justice Roadmap is HALT. That's the long-stalled human alternatives to long-term solitary confinement bill. It would dramatically curtail the use of solitary in New York State. Brooklyn Senator Julia Salazar, the new chair of the New York State Senate's Corrections Committee visited Fishkill. It's a medium security prison in the Hudson Valley, about an hour and a half drive from New York City. It's designated a male prison. She met with Marco in the SHU. That's the specialized housing unit used for solitary. He was visibly distressed in solitary. He was there for more than three weeks. The officers who accompanied us assured us beforehand that no one who was currently in SHU while we were there had been in there for more than 14 days. We asked them why Marco had been held there for longer. And when they reviewed his file, they informed us that it was essentially due to a technicality, not a violation, not Marco's behavior, um, but a technicality that he would be in solitary for an additional two weeks. What we witnessed at Fishkill, we, we witnessed cruelty, we witnessed harmful practices, but what's important to know is that we actually didn't witness anything unlawful. And the only reason I say that 
is because it underscores how important it is for us to change the law. It says that this is a policy failure. The fact that this can continue. Another bill in the Justice Roadmap package is elder parole. It would allow the State Board of Parole to provide an evaluation for potential parole release to those 55 and older who have already served 15 or more years, including some of the state's oldest and sickest people behind bars. Salazar. At one point, we came across a man who was in the long-term care unit um, who the officers informed us is is dying. He's essentially in hospice care. And they were sort of proud to share with us that they could connect him virtually or by phone to his family on the outside. It was It's as though they didn't even consider that the only humane thing to do in that situation is to release someone to their family. Another bill in the Justice Roadmap is the New York for All Act. It would curtail the ability of ICE to detain New Yorkers. Bronxville Assembly member Karinas Reyes visited the Orange County local jail and ICE Immigration Customs Enforcement Detention Facility. She was able to speak with detainees in their ICE pod alone in Spanish. And many of them said, look, I was detained for uh, DWI and I served my time. And when I was released from prison, ICE was waiting for me outside, picked me up and has had me here for a year. Um, We spoke to other people that have said I was I went home um, and ICE pretended to be um, Yonkers police knocked on my door and picked me up. And I've been here for two years. Um, We cannot continue to terrorize and hunt down our immigrant communities. Assemblymember Reyes says people are afraid to go to work. They're afraid to go to school because any interaction with police can land them in a detention center indefinitely without recourse for their families or answers as to when they're getting out. One of the laws in the Justice Roadmap is New York for All. It ends enforcement collaboration with ICE. It bars law enforcement officers from sharing information with ICE or Customs and Border Patrol. And it prohibits law enforcement from entering agreements to double as ICE agents. It's a law in the Justice Roadmap to ensure that no state or local resources are used to fuel mass deportation or separate families. For more information, on the Justice Roadmap, go to justiceroadmapny.org. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. A bill to update federal civil rights laws to include comprehensive protections for LGBTQ Americans comes up for a vote in the House of Representatives next week. The Equality Act was reintroduced in the House on Thursday by Rhode Island Democrat David Cicilline, It would amend existing federal civil rights laws to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity in employment, housing, credit, education, public accommodations, and federally funded programs. Kevin Jennings, CEO of Lambda Legal, notes the first effort to pass such a law was introduced by Representatives Bella Abzug and Ed Koch in 1974. Some version of the Equality Act has now been before Congress for 47 years. 
It's time for LGBT people to be guaranteed equal rights under the law by the federal government. President Joe Biden has said adopting the act would be a priority in his first 100 days in office. According to Jennings, a patchwork of non-discrimination laws among states leaves lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people vulnerable to discrimination on a daily basis. Right now, there are protections in some areas, but not others. There's protection in some states and not others. Literally, when you cross a state border in America, if you're LGBT, you may be losing some of your rights. The Equality Act would also update the public accommodations law, adding protections from discrimination in public places and by service providers. Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon is expected to introduce the Equality Act in the Senate next week. I'm Andrea Sears. On Saturday, February 20th, New Yorkers who've been hit hard by the COVID crisis will hold protests targeting State Senator Liz Kruger in Manhattan at noon and State Senator Roxanne Persaud in Berlin in Brooklyn at 1 p.m. Organized by New York Communities for Change and NYC DSA. The protesters want the state senators to support legislation in Albany, canceling rent and funding workers excluded from financial aid while taxing the wealthiest New Yorkers. Kruger is the state Senate finance chair with power to advance the bill. And Persaud represents a state Senate district in Brooklyn where low income and unemployed residents of color have been demanding COVID relief. And that's some of the news for Friday, February 19th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend.